When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at marines.com. Welcome in Rose City to another episode of the Soccer Made in Portland podcast. Uh, my name is Ryan Clark, the beat writer for the Portland Timbers and Thorns at the Oregonian. Uh, today we have a special guest on the podcast, uh, Portland Timbers GM Gavin Wilkinson. Uh, Gavin, welcome in. Thanks, Ryan. Good morning. Good morning, Chris. Hey, good morning, Gavin. Thanks for joining us. And uh, we're going. We're starting off with the three guy, the three man booth, which uh, in in broadcasting terms is dangerous. So, uh, Ryan, I'll let you take the lead to start out. <laughs> sure, appreciate that. We're, uh, we're, we're no Jake Zivin, uh, you know, Jake and and Liam and those guys. Uh, so, so we'll see how it goes. Yeah, yeah, we can only hope to live up to those gentlemen. Uh, so, starting off with, with you, Gavin. Obviously, um, a lot of folks have questions about some of the off-field challenges that the franchise has faced in recent months. Major League Soccer released its third-party report conducted by the New York law firm Proskauer Rose, which cleared the Timbers of attempting to cover up the incident involving Andy Polo or coerce. Uh, Genesis Alarcon into not pressing charges. It's been the club's view that this report clears the club of of wrongdoing in this case beyond the obvious failure to report, which uh, the MLS fined the Timbers $25,000 for. So my first question for you is, when you found out about the uh, May 23rd incident involving Andy Polo, uh, what were the actions that you took and, and what led to the ultimate determination not to report it to to MLS or suspend him uh, while the incident was being investigated. Thanks, Ryan. I don't think uh, there was a determination not to report it. I, I think when you you look at the report, you look at what MLS has released, which is very public. I would encourage everyone to read that, and it, it doesn't absolve us of what we could have done and what we could do moving forward. Uh, I think this is a moment for us to reflect as a club. And we will be and have already started meeting internally to make sure that we share our experience with other MLS clubs, Ryan, to make sure they know what we did, why we tried to do what we did. And there was a reason that MLS MLS looked at it. And yes, we failed to report it. We have to own that. But it wasn't through trying to cover it up. I I think that came out in the report. And there definitely there was not coercion. I think what we have to look at now as a club is, what more can we do to help families, to help significant others, to help wives, to help partners in feeling that they can come forward earlier? And also, what support can we give them the moment that they land in this country to make sure that they're aware of the, the, the laws and the obligations that, 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 that we all have? And 
there will continue to be meetings. And for, for me personally, I, I do hope to sit down with, you know, a group moving forward to, to share ideas, to look at the club, to reflect on what we did, to reflect on how to get better, especially in this area. And we'll be getting in more outside council. And we see this as a growth opportunity, Ryan. Absolutely. And um, so in this case, was it was it a situation of um, in the report, it, it details that um, you consulted the Timbers Council and both of you did not know the rule as far as reporting it, uh, according to, to the report. So so it was not reported in, in that instance. And then obviously, in retrospect, um, the league determined it, it should have been reported. Uh, was this a case of um, the incident not rising to the level of being a possible violation of the substance abuse and behavioral health policy in, in the club's view at the time? Or, or how would you best explain that? Ryan, you just made the same mistake I did. I thought it was in the SABH program and trying to figure out where in the SABH program – from my understanding, it does not exist in the SABH program. It's within the constitution of the league. And this is, I, I'm not going to say, uh, go into a lot more detail, but the rationale and the expectations of the club lies in the constitution. We'll, we'll leave it at that based on we need to do more homework as a club. We need to make sure what should and should not be reported. We're going to err on the side of caution as a club moving forward, Ryan, and we will be reporting everything, absolutely everything, regardless of what category it falls into, just to err on the side of caution. And so the, the mistake you just made was one that we emailed internally trying to figure out, trying to figure out the, the next approach, and we hit a dead end. Now we know, and it'll never happen again. Definitely. And uh, I appreciate you clearing that up. And given the, the serious injury that Andy Polo suffered and, and the potential concerns around the incident as as maybe one of, of multiple, as was later alleged by Genesis Alarcon, what went into the decision to, to re-sign Polo in December? That's an issue that uh, has, has caused some concern in fan circles. I, I think it's important to know that these were new allegations that were coming out of Peru, Ryan, we were based, uh, basing the decision on a set of information that we had. We were also looking to trade Andy Polo. We had made that very common around the league, and it wasn't for that reason, the new facts that came to light. We felt we needed to terminate him immediately based on his recovery from his injury, based on him as a player, based on what we knew. We thought bringing him back, taking up his option, we would have options within the league to trade him. And that did not uh, come to fruition, and we ended up terminating him. Right, right. And and the additional information that you're mentioning, just so that listeners are clear, was the additional allegations that Genesis Alarcon made in February on, on a Peruvian television station that go beyond the May 23rd incident. Is that correct? Correct, Ryan. And, and again, I would point back to a report that was done on this full investigation, and I would encourage people to read it. Absolutely. Uh, there are fans um, who've read that report who still feel there has not been accountability for, for this and other off-field issues, and some of them have gone so far as to call for your firing for, for that incident and others. Uh, what can you say to those to reach out to those who don't believe that the club is taking uh, accountability for its mistakes? 
Ryan, I, I had an open town hall meeting where I, I spoke about accountability. I have the hopes, the, the same hopes for this club that I, that I think fans do, and that that's to win a championship with quality people in the organization and quality people on the field. I am looking forward to sitting down with, with those fans and, and answering the questions directly and having it just very open and honest dialogue. We're not trying to avoid anything. We have spoken about accountability. But we have to also acknowledge that when a report comes out that gives the truth, there can't be a conspiracy theory that then says that we're trying to cover something up. You've got to look at the facts. You've got to understand the facts. And that is one small part behind us in terms of Andy Polo. We're fully aware that there's another investigation that's continuing and will be ongoing for a while. We can't share any more information on that. And we do wish we could. But this is an independent investigation by different entities. And we hope that that concludes. And I go back to saying and believing if there was wrongdoing, there will be accountability. If you look at the Andy Polo situation and decipher, was there wrongdoing on behalf of the club? The failure to report it, I think, was a small step. But there has to be a learning curve and there has to be some growth within the club as well and an acknowledgement that moving forward and a belief and an understanding that will never happen again. But when you look at the moments within that were managed, MLS has an opinion on that and it's shared within the report. The mistrust, I do understand that. We're working hard to try and win back the trust of the fans, Ryan. And that is a daily occurrence that will continue. We're continuing to put pressure on ourselves. There's continuing to be reflection and honesty within the clubs. Mistakes do happen, but you've got to look at the intent and understand that the mistake that was made in terms of Andy Polo wasn't because there was trying to be coercion or cover-up. And I think those facets and the bits of information have to be separated. You mentioned it. Uh, there are multiple investigations still ongoing regarding the, the Paul Riley situation with the Portland Thorns. And, and you obviously can't uh, get into detail as you have shared at town halls and, and now. Um, but do you have any idea when fans can expect those investigations to conclude? Have you been given any indication when uh, the the information from those may be made public? Ryan, I it would be irresponsible of me to give you a timeline. Well, I appreciate you answering those questions and for your um, transparency in this. And uh, going forward, um, Chris, if you if you would like to start us out with some questions of, of on-field matters and, and things that have been um, bouncing around in, in your head recently uh, as a as a Timbers supporter and, and someone watching from the from the sidelines. Yeah, let's let, let's move sort of back uh, to the soccer side of things. Um, so, you know, one thing that's actually been bouncing around in my head today is there was an article in The Athletic uh, in which Joe Mansueto, the, the owner of the Chicago Fire, uh, came out and expressed support for uh, for something, Gavin, that I think you've talked about in the past uh, and, that, and that a few others on the technical side have talked about in the past, which is sort of liberalizing or loosening uh, MLS, MLS's roster rules in terms of allowing clubs more flexibility to spend within the salary cap. You've previously sort of expressed similar kinds of things, I think, at the town hall uh, that we've already talked about. I, so I want to know, Gavin, what is is your sense right now? Do you think this is something that's gaining momentum within the league? Do you think changes along these lines are realistic or do you think there's still a ways off? I think there's still a ways off, Chris. 
we have CSO meetings, so chief soccer officer meetings, and uh, they generally happen, you know, every couple of months. One of the main topics that comes up within those meetings, and, and it's being prioritized as a, an agenda item moving forward, but the categorization of players. Why does a DP hit at 12.5% of the budget? Why categorize the TAM player based on a million plus max wage? The youth player slots, the initiative there, the belief in the structure, it, it's worked. And it's put MLS in a tremendous position to continue to move forward. And there have been many intelligent people contributing to the reasoning and the rationale on why the cap and why the categorization of the players exists the way they do. I do believe as we continue to strengthen as a league, as we continue to compete globally for players, we do need to loosen some of those. But it still has to be done within league rules. There still has to be a reason for moving forward in that direction. I would say the World Cup would give us a tremendous platform to continue to grow and showcase the game in this country. But having three DPs or two DPs and a DP that doesn't exist beyond max wage plus, you know, a million, and then having the youth player slots, it is confusing. It can be confusing for fans. It can be confusing for GMs. So what I go back to is if we just had a pot of money that everyone agreed upon and the GM, the club, the owner, they can divide that how they see fit to put the best product on the field. And there are clubs out there, we all do it very, very differently. And I think by allowing the freedom within a cap structure, still being limited, I do not believe we should have the have and the have-nots in the league. I do not believe that we should allow one team to go and spend $100 million and another team to spend twenty-five. I think the discrepancy, if money is well spent, money equals points. And that does equal championships. So there still has to be some guardrails put on the league and, and the teams uh, respectfully. But uh, I, I would be all on board uh, for, for that move. Gavin, I'm curious about your thoughts on, on this co-ed game that uh, was recently announced uh, for the Timbers and Thorns to play each other, mix teams, raise money for a, a great cause in, in supporting those uh, dealing with the war in Ukraine. Uh, tell us a little bit more about that and how that came together. Internally, we have a very diverse uh, staff and players, and we have uh, it, it started, I believe, with Magda Angra. So Nadine's wife came to us as a club, and there's a, a lot of architects and a lot of people that, that can take credit. I'm going to point to Magda and say, what more can we do as a club? So here's a person, her father lives in Poland, German, and just looking at it through her lens saying, we have a tremendous platform, what more could we do? And the, the question that was challenging Merritt, myself, Karina, and it came back to the thought, what can we do and how do we do it? And looking at the game that we hosted many, many years ago, that was a tremendous success for the TA support. We decided to, to go down a similar path and say, okay, we, we've been thinking about this co-ed game on a grander scale for years. And what if the Timbers and Thorns were to have a co-ed game against Roma, men and women, and how would that look? And it would be a first of that its kind around the world. And it, it gets everyone really excited and buzzing about the, the game and the, the possibilities. We have two tremendous teams and, and players that are involved in coaching staff. How do we showcase that? We ended up coming back internally and saying, we can control this. We can get captains in place. The coaches are going to be coaching mixed teams. We're going to mix and match the, the assistant coaching staff, the performance staff. And 
put out uh, two quality teams for for a quality game for the first of its kind and all with a tremendous uh, hope that we're going to raise significant funds for to support UNICEF and uh, the, the efforts moving forward to support Ukraine. So it's something we're looking forward to. I'm a little bit nervous about the who's going to win and who's going to lose and uh, how to manage that one. <laughs> but the players are all on board, the coaching staff's all on board, and the, the club's fully invested. So we're looking to make this a massive event and something that's recognized both domestically and globally as something that we could all do to, to continue to move forward and, and help. So, Gavin, I'm going to put you on the spot uh, since you referenced the who's going to win, who's going to lose. Uh, what we know now, although we haven't seen the draft, uh, that's that's still to come. Uh, but we know that Diego Chara and Kelly Hubley are going to be leading one team uh, and then Sink and Seba Blanco, the other. Uh, based on the leadership of the two teams, uh, if somebody forced you to put money down on one today, who would it go to? That's unfair, Chris. I've got to see the draft. You've been in the GM business a long time. Who do you think are going to be the, the stronger GMs between those two teams? The stronger GMs. Okay. Oh, goodness gracious. I'm going to have a fight on my hands regardless on this one. <laughs> I've got Sink and uh, Blanco, Kelly and uh, Diego. I'm I'm sorry, Diego and Kelly. I'm going to go with Sink and Blanco. And... Uh, I, 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 I'm just going to put it down to years of experience and uh, knowledge of the league. I, I'm going to lean on those elements, but it's going to be very close. Yeah, I, uh, I, I'm actually with you. I don't know how you go against, uh, in particular, I don't know how you go against Sync uh, on, on this point. That that strikes me as a bit of a trump card. Uh, I agree. Uh, all right. Hey, I wanted to ask you, uh, so the Timbers now sitting at nine points through seven games. Uh, that's a pretty familiar spot, uh, I would say, for uh, for April. Slow starts have very much been a thing. They've been, uh, you know, almost universal since, you know, since uh, 2013 or so, at least. And I think you can even dig back to 2011, although the expansion years uh, are, are, are a little bit of a different issue. Why do you think these are happening? I mean, this is a consistent thing. The team pretty consistently comes out of it sometime in the summer and then looks great in the fall. Uh, but with respect to the slow starts, have you all looked internally at why it's happening? And, and do you have some ideas about what solutions may be going forward? This is a yearly question that we sit down, we look at our objectives, we look at points per game, we look at what we want the first six games to look like. And frustrated and disappointing, but not in the individual players, not in the coaching staff. That's not what I'm saying. It's just in in the collective and the number of points that we have. I do look at it and say we can perform better. Look in the mirror and say what could we do differently, the, the mistakes that we should learn from the past. And then you start to ask yourself some strange questions, Chris. If we know the qualities there is the motivation there, and if the motivation's not there, why is it not there? We haven't been able to point the finger to any of these ones. Things we have, we have a tremendous group of coaches, performance staff. In one of the years previously, I'd say physically, we weren't prepared, and there were reasons for that. That's not on the performance staff. That was to do with where we were at, what we were trying to do, managing, you know, Champions League, etc. But where we're at right now, the the team's fit. They're healthy. We've missed some key players, so you could lean on in that a little bit. But you also look at the moments within the game. We should have 100% had a penalty against New England. Suddenly, that's a two-point difference. So that's 11 points. And then you start to look at there's a strong acknowledgement. And we've had many conversations with Pro that have been very beneficial to all of us. And there were potentially two PKs in the LA game that would have given us another point. 
So suddenly after this number, we're on 12 points and it looks very different. And while the narrative can still be very similar because we expect more, there are moments within the game and moments uh, that, that we've created for ourselves, by the way, where it could be very different. So we're not pushing the panic button, but we also cannot get to the point where we expect this and we're complacent and we're okay with it. And that's one thing you'll find about this group is they, they are already feeling the pressure. They're already addressing that, Chris, and, and they're already talking internally. We all are talking internally. We had another very productive, heated conversation yesterday about where we need to be this weekend because we know what our record is in, in Houston. And while we won there last year, historically, we've not been good. Historically, in the first you know month, two months of the season, we've been questionable. It's how do we address these, how do we overcome these hurdles, and how do we work collectively to, to solve them? But frustrating, but I know we're capable of more. When we're under pressure, we perform best. When we play against who we consider to be the bigger names in the league, normally we perform better. There are these things that we do have to figure out, and they've been ongoing, and they, they do need to change. Definitely. And, um, you know, Gio has expressed some concerns as, as far as he can go, uh, safely on, um, on some of the officiating decisions. And, and I know you, you don't want to go too far either, but how frustrating is that to have week by week th- things, you know, can change so drastically and how games are officiated, things can impact potentially, you know, the, those valuable early season points when you're, you know, still putting things together and, and trying to, um, to get three points out of, out of each game. Is there a level of frustration there with, with, with how that's gone down? Yes. And no, I, I think when you're winning, the, the saying is it's a great deodorant and it covers up the cracks. I, I think facing adversity early in the season for me gives us all a reflection and it's what do we see and how do we move forward? Ryan, the officiating, we can't blame the officiating. We put ourselves in that position to suffer from officiating. And there's a lot of belief in pro. There's a lot of belief in, in the officials. We go back to, we would prefer they not make mistakes in Portland. We've asked and had great conversations about, does our fan base create a hostile environment? Does a referee feel that they need to go against our fan base to show that they're impartial and these have been just very productive conversations that, with opinions attached to them. However, we put ourselves in these positions early in the season and we put the referee in a tough decision to make that. And it, sometimes it's for you, sometimes it's against you. But it ultimately has been a, a good reflection for us to say, how do we get better? Why are we in this situation? And how do we move forward? And in facing this adversity, we've had to you know, own up to a few more things early. Is the quality of our defending good enough? Is our understanding, is our, is our shape defensively? Whatever it might be that the question, and I'm not saying they are, but they create a lot more conversation. Yeah, I don't know if you've, Ryan, you, you, you've been out there, but the training facility a, a day after losing is a very serious environment. A day after winning, everyone's on cloud nine, still reflecting, but everyone spends more time in the moment after a loss naturally evaluating, critiquing the game and best ways to move forward. Facing this adversity early in the season, having ref decisions go against you, we end up spending more time discussing how to move forward and it's healthy. 
So Gavin, I, I have actually two more questions for you that I'm going to hit real fast. One, I wanted to 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 make a note uh, and to ask a question based off of it. The U15s yesterday, uh, or, or the day before yesterday, I should say, yes, uh, logged a big win uh, against Manchester United, which is uh, yep. for those who don't know, a small club in England. Um, uh, at, at the Generation Adidas Cup, they've moved on uh, now to face the Red Bulls, uh, the New York Red yep. Bulls, uh, one of the biggest academies in the United States. Uh, this uh, this morning uh, at the GA Cup, but I wanted to, to ask you a question about the academy, sort of more generally, um, which is, you know, I mean, we're starting to see now clubs around MLS, Philadelphia, Dallas, really start not only to to generate first team players regularly and, and starting first team players regularly from their academy, but also to turn it into a source of revenue by selling players on uh, for often big transfer fees. Uh, that's not been uh, a thing that we've had a lot of here in in, in Portland. Um, and, and we've, we've talked about this on this podcast before, and we've, we sort of yep. talked about some of the reasons. Are you concerned though, that, that, you know, not producing out of the academy, like some of those top teams may end up turning into a competitive disadvantage down the road, uh, because you're not going to have that source of revenue because you're not going to have sort of that pipeline of internal, maybe, you know, uh, salary cap friendly players. 100%. It's already putting us in a situation where there is a competitive disadvantage. The MLS in many ways, is built on parity, making sure that every team has the ability to win the championship. With that said, we are developing. We're growing. You can see in the results that the U17s have had. You can see in the results that U15s have had. What we did was strip the academy back to the basics, invest in people, invest in coaches, and start to put a lot more emphasis on the development of those individual teams rather than trying to have a collection of a larger group of players. So there's a general saying, you cast a wide net, you're going to, to get lucky. When you have markets within New York, within Dallas, within LA, it doesn't even necessarily need to be development. You can get lucky simply based on the number of players playing the game, the population size, demographics, and the development opportunities where naturally the cream rises to the top. In Portland, we don't have that. We have some very talented young players who we're trying to give the opportunity to develop, but it's not a natural situational scenario where we've got thousands and thousands of players at every age group and one or two get through. So what we're trying to do is take a slightly different approach and have done for the last several years. And I think we're starting to see some of the benefits. Now, the question is just because we're getting great results at U15, U17, um, our U17 team beat Roma, our U15 team also beat Porto. So there's some results in there that start to give the club a little bit more recognition in the way the academy is moving forward. And hats off to Rob and the coaching staff, Fernando and Darren, Connor. You've got a group of individuals there that are fully invested in the Timbers and into the academy. The next step is how do we create that player of value for the first team? How do we create that player of value for overseas clubs? And we have not solved that yet. The first part was to solve the academy, get more quality coming through the academy, to put more pressure on the first team staff and myself to give them a platform in, in which to shine. The introduction of T2 is a massive positive, Chris. It fills the void and it starts to give us a testing ground for the Hunters, the Tagers. It worked for Eric Williamson. It worked for Bill Tuiloma. It, it's worked for, you know, Marvin Luria. There, there's players that have come through that that will continue to have phenomenal careers and have great value in the transfer market. There's a different way of doing it. Maybe they didn't come through the academy, but they definitely came through the second team. Now that we've got more players coming through the academy, we expect the same opportunities to exist 
for players going into T2 and eventually into the first team. Finally, we'd be remiss uh, if we didn't, uh, with the, the transfer window uh, closing in about three weeks, we'd be remiss if we didn't ask you about that. Gio has talked a couple times uh, about the potential for bringing in uh, a new striker before the window closes uh, in, in the first or second week of May. Uh, do you have an update on that? And is there anything else uh, that we can expect that, that you're working on uh, in the next three weeks or so? We, we are looking to close one uh deal to bring a player in that player will be coming in on loan is what we're looking at and it's because of a situation and just to give you the background you got Yarrick Nearsgoda you got Felipe Mori you got Tega Tega's a, a young promising player in the club we don't want to block the opportunities but we go back earlier about the categorization of players what makes sense for us what we are looking at is to add a player in an attacking position that will fill the category of youth player slot it gives us flexibility on the cap. It, it gives us the ability to get a, a player that is worth more than the value that it shows on the roster. So that position, that player will show up as 200000 It'll be a, a significant investment from the club to bring this player in on loan. And what it does is allows us time to bring Felipe Mora back and time for Tega to get games in T2 to give him enough of a, a sample size in, in which to progress into the first team, Chris. So we are definitely looking prior to the close of this upcoming window to add an attacking player. And primarily that that will be seen as a nine. And that'll be to keep Yarrow on his toes, give us a little bit more roster balance until Felipe Mora comes back. And it would be alone with, with uh, the possibility of a future acquisition. Okay, so that's one. And then in the summer window, we have uh, Jose Carlos Van Rankin, whose loan expires, we're looking at the right opportunity, the, the right person for that position. And, and there's no doors that are closed, but uh, I think we do need to continue to strengthen as a club. We do need to continue to get better. Thank you very much, Gavin. Uh, we will wrap it there. Uh, we appreciate you coming on Soccer Made in Portland uh, and, and wish you all the best going forward. Thanks again. Hey, thank you, gentlemen. Thanks, Gavin. Always nice to, to talk. Hey, this is Ryan. You are listening to Soccer Made in Portland. We will be right back after a quick break. All right, we will jump right into to our typical jobs here. And, and again, I use the term job very loosely uh, when it comes to my pal Chris Reifer because he this is this is uh this is fun for him he, he, he this is this is a little <laughs> little hobby a little little uh a little side gig for for my buddy Chris um so we'll jump right into it which, with, which is which is why when it comes to the to the to the serious stuff I'm like I'm gonna I'm gonna step out of the way and allow you know the professionals to take over uh, and then when it comes to talking about soccer I'm like all right let's get the amateurs involved yeah, just insert the insert the Birdman rubbing his hands meme <laughs> there when, whenever uh, the soccer topics come up for Chris. Um, and one of those soccer topics is um, this this past weekend I tripped up to Vancouver, beautiful city, Lo- loved uh, being up there. You know, there was a good good contingent of Timbers fans up there for uh, for that game, and then um, women's soccer fans from around Canada and and potentially the U.S. with Canadian roots, uh, who came up to watch Christine Sinclair, Janine Becky, um, and others from the Portland Thorns organization who were honored uh, at the Canadian Women's National Team's uh, celebration tour game against Nigeria up uh, at BC Place. That that was a lot of fun. Uh, It's 
really great, Chris, to to see people honor women athletes for their achievements uh, on such a grand scale and to fill a a stadium, uh, the lower bowl of a stadium like they did at BC Place uh, with with some rabid fans with face paint and uh, signs and flags. And they're they're screaming for Karina LeBlanc to come over and and sign their Canadian flag. I mean, those images to me are, are... really beautiful to see in terms of the growth of the women's game globally. And it's something that, that has, you know, historically been, been cast off by a lot of sort of mainstream men's soccer media or in mainstream men's sports media. There are these established fan bases, including in, in, in places like Canada and in, in the United States, certainly um, that are, that are big, they're robust, they're vibrant. Um, and you know, I mean, especially with, with Canada's recent achievements in the Olympics, bringing home the gold medal, uh, cool gold numbers on their, on their kits, uh, celebrating that. And then to be able to, to sort of use that momentum and, and tie it into the opportunities to honor people like Rian Wilkinson, like Christine Sinclair, like, uh, KK LeBlanc. I mean, that, that's, that's an awesome moment, um, for Canada, it's an awesome moment for those fans who have supported Canada really, really well for a long time, uh, and I think have have often felt overlooked, especially in in the women's soccer universe. Uh, it's it's an awesome opportunity for for those fans to have their moment in the sun as well. So uh, I, I I caught a little bit of it, not nearly as much as you being there, uh, but it looked like just a, a you know a historic day uh, in Canada, which which is is well deserved uh, both on the team front. Uh, and also for the individuals being honored. Right. And one of those individuals being Christine Sinclair. I mean, she is the all-time leading scorer in the history of the international game, period. And uh, for for her to have to stand there and, uh, as Karina LeBlanc put it, stand there and take it when uh, the the highlight video of her career was up there, uh, she had her family with her and, and um, was pointing up to the screen and, and, you know, smiled occasionally, but otherwise you will find few people more uncomfortable in this world with attention and recognition of greatness than, than someone like Christine Sinclair. And, and when you balance that with her competitive drive, um, it, it's really something special to behold as, as one of the, the great athletes really in North American sports history. And to be clear, if you were to actually create a highlight reel of Christine Sinclair's uh, career, like you would need to make it something like a Ken Burns series, right? Uh, <laughs> uh, like multi parts, you know, get 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 famous voiceover folks uh, to come in to, to 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 do it, and and she'd have to like show up for like you know two hours on multiple nights in order to actually get through it, and she'd have to stand there and take it, as KK put it. Yeah, paging uh, Sir David Attenborough. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, exactly. So, uh, well, cool. I'm glad you got to experience that. Any other sort of, you know, vibes notes from your trip uh, trip up to Vancouver? Great food scene in Vancouver. Uh, totally removed from our soccer discussion. I, I hopped around and, um, you know, did my best impression of Anthony Bourdain when I was, uh, you know, running around Vancouver trying to get a feel for the city. I had been there as a young child, but you don't really get a, a true absorption of, of the, the culture and the history and, and who the people are and, you know, the vibe of the city until you're, an adult. So it was a lot of fun to, to get around and enjoy what the city had to offer from a food perspective. Great sushi, um, great seafood in general there. The cultural diversity 
that exists in that city um, is completely evident in the food. I mean, you, you walk down any street, there's Thai restaurants, Indian restaurants, dim sum places, sushi, uh, you name it. I mean, you are the full gamut of, you know, Eastern influences and other, other cultures that are there. Um, it's really exciting and fun. And you saw that reflected in the crowds at, at these um, soccer matches too. You know, it's, it's a really, unique gem of the Pacific Northwest in a lot of ways. It made me, you know, sympathize with, with the people who say that, you know, Oregon and Washington should secede from the U S and join British Columbia in, in the, uh, in the Cascadia region. So, so yeah. you're, you're, you're throwing in your hat fully in the free Cascadia ring. I'm, I'm getting there, you know, I'm, I'm <laughs> slowly being radicalized as far as, uh, splitting off. Uh, cause you know, those, those two States, I love them dearly, Oregon and Washington. And then, um, you know, you go up to BC and you see what it has to offer. And I, I think we'd do well. We, we might need California in there, you know, for, economic purposes if we really want to be a world superpower but we'll, we'll get into geopolitics maybe a little bit later as we dive in now to, to timbers and white caps which i also was able to to go up to there in vancouver on saturday which seemed like a, a quite a bit more subdued uh atmosphere than uh than the night before uh with uh, the the canada game um, yeah. So j- just to circle back though, on, on your point about Vancouver, uh, it is, I think my favorite MLS road trip. Um, still, I love Vancouver physically. You know, the other thing that, you know, because, you know, <laughs> my mind goes to a lot of the places where, where years went, which is the food is amazing. The, the, um, the sort of just vibes of the city, uh, some of the outdoor opportunities around there are really cool. Um, but like the city is also just physically really beautiful incredibly beautiful absolutely i feel like that's that's sometimes overlooked but but sort of nestled sort of uh just kind of right on uh like right into the mountains there uh on uh uh, on the water it's it's pretty awesome um wasn't able to make it this time haven't been since the pandemic but it's uh it's something that it's not going to be too long because it is my favorite mls road trip yeah, the Timbers won, also won a game, which is something that they've done uh, with uh, with unusual regularity in Vancouver. BC Place, uh, as the Timbers Army calls it, uh, our house in the middle of BC, uh, <laughs> has been kind of the Timbers' house in the middle of BC. They've had some big wins there in the playoffs. Uh, they've had some big wins there in the regular season. Uh, I don't know if I would go so far as to say this last weekend was a big win uh, along uh, the lines of some of those others, but it certainly was a win, and it was a it was a win that the Timbers needed. Uh, you called it, by the way. Jerry, by the way, is is joining the chat uh, uh, behind me. If you hear some rumbling, uh, <laughs> <laughs> Jerry being my dog for for those who aren't longtime listeners. Uh, but uh, uh, you know, it's a it's a, tim- a win that the Timbers needed, and a, and a and a win that you called. So, Ryan, what gave you uh, what gave you the the, the foresight, the inspiration uh, to call that? And do you think that's that that's how the game played out? Uh, it was pure luck. Let's be honest with ourselves. Um, I, MLS <laughs> is just so weird. Uh, you know, you, you you see teams, you know, struggle their way through the first few games of a season, and then. Um, suddenly they'll have this type of breakout game where things start to go right. And, you know, looking at the Timbers, I, I saw flashes of what could could be uh, in those first few games. And I think that they got the most out of pretty much everybody in that game against Vancouver. Um, 
it probably should have ended up three to one, uh, which would, looks a lot better in terms of a strong performance. And we'll certainly get into, uh, those issues later as far as the PKs, but, um, it, it was really their most complete game of the, the season. I thought they, they put it together, um, some really solid runs, particularly on the counter attack, but also, you know, you look at a young guy like Marvin Luria stepping in for, uh, Seba Blanco in the first half and, and he was excellent, you know, so it showcased Portland's depth. Uh, Yimmy Chara got himself back into the scorebook. Yaronis Goda. Um, I, I heard some expletives yelled, uh, at Chris Reifer from the field from him. No, I'm, I'm kidding. He definitely didn't do that. But are you sure those weren't coming from the press box? Uh, they, <laughs> they weren't coming from me, but I, you know, I, <laughs> I can tell you, um, you know, that there's been a lot of talk around Yarrow and, and, you know, rightfully so. He's had a rough season and his advanced stats have been, um, not terribly great, you know, in, in recent games. Uh, but, but he came through and, and he looked good. You know, that, that chance he had, um, you know, I talked to, to Gio Savarese yesterday at Timbers practice and, uh, Gio was thoroughly impressed with, um, with what Yarrow did in that game and he believes in him. Uh, and, and when we talked to Gavin, you know, he, he talks about signing an additional striker, um, somebody, yes, to keep Yarrow on his toes, as, as Gavin said, but, not somebody to, you know, bump Yarrow out of the way. They they still believe in Yarrow. They they know that he's coming off of a major injury and is still rounding himself into form. So overall, you know, really strong performance, I thought, from Portland in that Vancouver game. Uh, Vancouver's n- no slouches either. I, I think that they are a pretty solid defensive team. They, they found their chances here and there, but um, the way they defend was really impressive to me. And, you know, the fact that Portland was able to break through that and find its opportunities was really impressive. And I thought in the first half, the way the Timbers did that was really smart. So uh, Vancouver set up and and has been setting up. They have their three-man back line, and then they have sort of a, a three-man central midfield that they've been playing with a little bit. I think you can call it a 3-3-4, but it kind of ends up shaping up for a reason that I'm going to discuss a bit differently, because they have that three-man central midfield, and then they have effectively – Two running up top, but with wingbacks who will periodically be sort of wingers. One of the challenges with the way Vancouver was shaped up, I think, to start this is they were trying to use their their front two and sometimes bring the wingbacks into it to provide some pressure for the Timbers. But they had their three-man central midfield set up in a way that I think really wasn't conducive to them being able to press effectively because they had two sort of more holding defensive oriented midfielders in that three man central midfield. And then one that was a little bit more advanced, but because they had that, that, that triangle with two at the bottom and then one at the top, the Timbers were really doing a nice job of essentially holding the ball deep. Oftentimes with either Alias Ivacic, uh, Diego Chara would step back. I mean, basically at the top of their own penalty box and force that front wave of, uh, of Whitecaps pressers to come and press them really, really high up the field because they knew that if they could break that initial wave of pressure, everything would be super stretched uh, because the, the Whitecaps weren't getting those two de- more defensive-oriented midfielders 
sort of high up to, to fill the gaps. And so if they could just get past that first line, they could sort of temp, draw that first line up and get past it, then everything else was going to be really stretched. And I think over and over and over in the first half, you saw the Timbers do this. I mean, multiple times, Ivashic basically just stood at the top of the box with his foot on the ball, waiting for the Whitecaps to come out and press. And then once they did, they would play one or two passes to beat that initial wave of pressure uh, and, 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 and to create that stretching that they did, which is ultimately how the, the, the first goal came about. It's sort of how the second goal came about as well. Um, and, and, and getting that, getting that dynamic. And it's why, even though I didn't think the Timbers had a ton of dangerous circumstances, they were able to create more than, than, than Vancouver was. And I thought Vancouver didn't do themselves any favors with the way they shaped that central midfield because there really wasn't much resistance once the Timbers got past. Uh, whoever they were choosing to press with in that first wave, I thought that dynamic though changed, and uh, and 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 the Timbers had quite a bit more trouble once Vancouver in, inverted that triangle in central midfield. They they pulled off one. Of, they pulled off. Uh, I think it was Russell Tybert who they pulled off in the second half around the hour. One of their more defensive oriented midfielders, uh, and 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 brought on uh, a central midfielder who was who played a little bit higher up. And once that happened and Vancouver were down two goals, they were sort of forced to be a bit more aggressive in the way they pressed. I thought the Timbers had a much more difficult time because all of a sudden it wasn't as simple as sort of just getting by that first uh, player or two and then kind of having the field uh, to attack. There was a second wave of pressure that was that was there more meaningfully for the Whitecaps, and I think the Timbers struggled with it. But the initial tactical approach from the Timbers to really sort of stretch the Whitecaps vertically and then play into that space uh, and, and and to be pretty direct once they did, I thought was pretty successful. Uh, and and I think that is what allowed the Timbers to, to, you know, get into that position where they were on top of the game. Uh, and, you know, even though the Whitecaps, I think, played pretty well over the course of the last half hour, I, I think the Timbers did not play all that well over the course of the last half hour. Because of all that good work they'd put into the first hour, you know, it was going to really take something, maybe a head-scratching intervention from the referee. Perhaps. Uh, to get, yeah, perhaps, just hypothetically speaking, yeah. uh, to, to, to get the, the, the Whitecaps into the game. So I, I thought this was one of Gio Savarese's better performances um, in the way he set up his team to go into this game. Uh, and, and I thought the Timbers ended up executing that pretty well. Uh, to, to talk about Nishgoda a little bit, first of all, the goal was cool. Uh, oh, yeah. it's, it's, uh, you know, that, that's one that Vancouver is not going to love <laughs> watching back Florian Youngworth, uh, who, uh, who, you know, uh, I, I, I imagine they put his body back together, uh, after that, but Humpty Dumpty indeed <laughs> fell off the wall, uh, when, when he's going to just blew by him and then like, Yaronish Goda is not a blow by kind of guy, but he nonetheless just blew by him. Yeah. Uh, and, 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 and had a nice finish there. Uh, and I thought in the first half, especially, he, he was doing a little bit better job and, and the numbers bear this out of making himself available to combine. I mean, it's important when you are trying to play direct and when you are uh, sort of trying to beat an initial wave of pressure, it's important to have a striker who's going to be able to combine and, 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 and sort of be somebody who can hold up the ball and, and then who can connect uh, with his fellow attackers. And I think he did a better job of that in the first hour or so of this game uh, than he had in previous games. I think the Timbers really needed him though, to be bigger in that, you know, last half hour or so. Uh, because when you are getting that kind of pressure, it's going to be even more important 
to have an outlet and to have and and one of the things that you want to see as an outlet is a striker who really does do uh, uh is really active and makes himself ava- available to serve that role uh, and then can distribute out of that so I still have some criticism of his performance there. Uh, I, I think that was part of why the Timbers really had a hard time uh, breaking out. It's not all on him. Uh, I'm not even sure he's a, he's primarily responsible for that. Frankly, there were there were times, as there were against LAFC, it sort of reminded me uh, of that, where the Timbers were just wasteful in in possession. They they were giving away bad balls. Yeah. Uh, that you that you just can't do when you're under that much pressure from your opponent because your opponent has to take risks. Uh, in order to get back into the game, you just can't waste those those moments of possession, those opportunities to really pressure and push your lines back up, and they were uh, wasteful in some of those moments. So, right. you know, I, I don't mean to emphasize and, and to throw Nishgoda under the bus too much uh, for the, the, those late game troubles, but there are, is still that facet of the game that I think the Timbers need more of from him. Uh, when they have a team that's pressing as hard as the Whitecaps, but uh, you know, I mean, there there are there are flaws in a striker that are a lot easier to forgive when they're scoring goals like he did uh, against the Whitecaps. So cr- full credit to him uh, for sort of ticking that uh, biggest and most important box. No doubt, and uh, I think he looks a lot better with with Blanco out there too. I, I think that his opportunities um, are, are more frequent. I, I think that. Uh, him and Blanco kind of have a rapport together that, uh, that seems better than, uh, Blanco really has with anybody else. You know, I, I think that Blanco wants to see Yarrow succeed, um, almost as much, if not more than Yarrow does, you know, it's, it's very like, um, you know, he's, he's a supportive teammate in, in the way that he finds him. Um, I, I think that the three of them, Yimmy, Seba and, and Yarrow, um, when they're on, they're on, but, um, there can be moments where, you know, things get a little too haphazard, um, especially for Yimmy, you know, Yimmy can, um, can find himself in some strange situations. Like I think there was a point in a previous game where he ran into a teammate, um, on a run, you know, stuff happens in soccer. We know this, but there, there's a little bit of a haphazard nature to, to Portland's attack at times, which, you know, having uh, Blanco out there for a full 90 or, or even for 75 um, has alleviated that in the past. Um, but by that same token, I, I think that Marvin Luria, when he was in there, um, showed that he should be somebody who, when Blanco needs rest or uh, comes out of the game, he is a to me, reliable individual in terms of his creativity, in terms of his pace, uh, and and really his aggression. I mean, he he drew the penalty that um, was ultimately finished by Dyron Espria, but um, all all that I saw from him before he he got nailed in that like five person collision that led to that penalty, which was not uh, called by the way, on the field and was later called by VAR, which was an active VAR. Um, yes. And so, so let's just jump into that because that, that's a topic. Let's jump into that. This is one of my favorite topics. I love talking about referees. This is a topic that has uh, been front of mind for Timbers fans for the last few weeks and Thorns fans to a degree. I mean, you know, there was some, some challenges the Thorns faced in terms of officiating, but specifically with the Timbers, um, <laughs> the the last stretch of the of that match i sports writers hate when stuff like this happens right because i've got my nice little 
three to one uh, story written, and I'm like, oh goody, I can publish publish this instantly and not worry about it. But beyond my personal per- and professional concerns, uh, the late call for a penalty definitely uh, questionable, uh, <laughs> to say the least. And and uh, Geo flat out said it to me this week. He said that's not a PK, and um, most. Uh, MLS fans would be uh, inclined to agree with such statements, including one Chris Reifer. I, yeah, it's, it's definitely not a penalty that that's ridiculous, but honestly, like that, that to me is almost a secondary concern coming out of this game. Oh, the, the bigger concern. And the one that I just scratch my head over is what does a clear and obvious error mean? And the answer, we have a very clear answer from that from from PRO and that answer is ask me next week because it's going to be different next week than it is this week (laughs) two weeks ago uh, against the LA Galaxy it was not a clear and obvious error not to call a handball when a guy was raising his hand like he wanted to answer a question in class and the ball deflected off of his hand that wasn't a clear and obvious error uh, apparently this week, we have a completely different approach to that question, uh, where the VAR is extremely active, uh, sort of radios down three times. Um, and honestly, not unreasonably, any time. I, I, I understand what the VAR was thinking in each instance. Um, but, uh, but you know, calling down nonetheless three times uh, in a game that, that, you know, was a difficult game to call, but... But we had a difficult game to call last week, and the VAR was was sitting on his hands. Uh, so yeah, I don't know what uh, what a clear and obvious error is. Uh, I I am not sure Pro knows what a clear and obvious error is, or at least I don't think that they're well aligned in terms of applying that standard consistently. Uh, in terms of the actual calls, with respect to the first penalty that the Timbers got after video review, I get it. Uh, that was a hard one to call on live action because it was sort of just a mess of bodies. It was a five car crash. Uh, And it was hard to tell sort of in live action, you know, who, who fairly played the ball and who was in, uh, in and and committed a foul. And so like, that's a good use of VAR to me uh, to, to come back because the VAR is able to take a closer look and figure out, Oh no, Loria did get his foot in. He did fairly play the ball. And then he just got clattered into um, so great. I mean, good on, good on, uh, you know, I mean, I, I don't hold Sylvia Petrescu, the center referee, particularly responsible for that one and good on the, the, the VAR for saying, Hey, wait a minute, let's take a look at this. The second one was interesting because after seeing, especially after seeing sort of the, the reverse angle, uh, on replay, I understand what the VAR was seeing there too. Uh, and you know, I, it wasn't, it wasn't as obvious a foul, uh, as, as the one on Loria, but I'm not going to say it was, it's wrong to call that a foul, but you know, okay, that, that's fine. Um, I, but frankly, I mean, in many ways that to me was equivalent to the, the, the foul on Jimmy Chara against LA that was not called and that the VAR did not call down for. I mean, it was sort of a similar kind of thing where, uh, where has the ball gotten away? Yeah, probably. Did the foul really matter? Probably not. Was it an egregious foul? No, it wasn't an egregious foul. They're both sort of borderline and we're being told one week, well, that's not a clear and obvious error. So move on. Nothing to see here. And then we're being told the other week, well, that is a clear and obvious error. And the referee's got to go to the, to, to the monitor, uh, and, and, and correct the call. 
So, you know, again, I'm not fired up about that being called a penalty in general because I think that's a credible call. But the clear and obvious error standard is being applied completely differently from week to week. And then the third one, I mean, it just total clown show. I, I mean, yeah. I don't know what else to say. I mean, not a penalty in live action. You shouldn't have needed shoulder to shoulder. Frankly, I think it was Caicedo gave as much or more than Bravo gave. Just not a penalty at all in live action on replay ever. Oh, and frankly, I think we had a center referee who was probably a little bit bashful about being overturned twice uh, or having his decision on the field overturned twice earlier in the game. Uh, went and realized there was about a minute left in the game, saw it on, on the monitor and said, you know, do we need to do this a third time? We'll stick with what we have on the field. Uh, calling that was clearly a clear and obvious error. Uh, and, and I'm, you know, I, I am baffled. Uh, as to why uh why why it was called in the first instance and yeah, then me why too. it wasn't fixed. Yeah, no, it it was uh it was dumbfounding in person too. I mean it, to, it, we we in the press box, me and and um the members of the media uh in Vancouver, uh we all huddled by the, the T V that was playing the broadcast to to get a, a look at the replay and, and the collective groan you should have heard from the press box from from everybody, regardless of their uh, potential allegiances, who they were covering, um, it was just like an "Oh my God, are you kidding me right now?" thing. And and you know the Timbers are lucky that such an error occurred in a situation where they were up three to one. You know, yeah. Uh, Gio and I were talking about that this week. That like, you know, if, if that was a situation where they hadn't gotten that third goal as a, as a little cushion, uh, they fall butt backwards and do a draw and and that would be absolutely devastating with how well portland played in that game for them to pull a draw um and, and for uh the referees to potentially play a role in that occurring so you know a lot to digest there for sure and, and the other point is i mean I, I, you know this is a useless exercise but let's do a little thought experiment if the game is actually on the line does that penalty get called it's a very good question. I don't know if it does. I I mean, I don't know, think it does. No, but I yeah. I can't I can't believe it would. I can't either. Um, you know, situation situational pressure from that situation may lend itself to that not happening. Um, more sober analysis. Yes, yeah, <laughs> something a little more, you know, rational, you know, human brain working as it's supposed to type of thing. But you know when you when you talk to folks around the league, uh and you, and you, you sort of talk to folks in like it in soccer, one of the the sort of I think you you know you can fairly say this is cynical, but I also think there's truth to it, and I think that's what we're sort of touching on here. Um, one of the things you, that you'll hear them say in complaining about referees is that they referee the score, not the game. Um, that that they're more willing to give calls to teams that are trailing. Uh, they're more willing to make calls when when they don't feel like it'll have a dispositive effect on the game uh, than when you know, it, it will have a material effect on the game uh, or, or it will, uh, you know, grow a team's lead. And, and I think, I, I think this is the kind of circumstance that feeds into that. Now I, you know, I'm sure there are people in referee circles who, who chafe very significantly at that kind of talk, but I, I, I think you at least have to understand where it comes from when you watch things like the end of the game uh, in Vancouver. Definitely. Uh, before we go, 
Um, I, there's not a, a lot to talk about in the way of the thorns right now because they are off uh, during this international window. But I do want to mention a, a pair of thorns who, um, while I was up in Vancouver um, jumping around between uh, the Canadian women's national team and, and the, the Timbers, uh, they had some pretty seriously awesome performances for their nations. Uh, Sophia Smith is the first one that folks may be more aware of. Um, she got a hat trick for the U.S. women's national team uh, as they absolutely pummeled Uzbekistan in, in the first of two meetings there. Um, youngest player since the early 2000s to to get a hat trick for Team USA, so props to her. Uh, she's someone who who I – see coming into her own as a star for the thorns and um is going to do the same i believe for for the u.s women's national team as they continue to play opponents maybe with a little more of a um resistance and a little higher caliber than than the uzbeks but um another was rocky rodriguez uh she was uh competing for costa rica and she scored a hat trick uh, of her own which uh is absolutely uh, tremendous for her um and what a day i mean for for the, for the thorns to have two uh, of their young leaders uh score hat tricks for their countries i think that's really exciting the other bit of thorns news that i think comes uh out of twitter uh is that janine becky uh tweeted about the the uh the co-ed game saying that she's looking forward to being there for it which is not, you know, significant that she's tweeting about the co-ed game, but it does uh, mean that her arrival, if it hasn't happened already, and we haven't seen them because they've been uh, in an off week, we will see them on Sunday. But her arrival seems at least imminent, uh, which I, I think is welcome. Absolutely, and you know, speaking to Karina LeBlanc after uh, her honors in Canada, uh, we discussed Janine Becky, and, and she told me, you know, she she sees Janine as someone who is. Uh, able to play at multiple positions and provide depth at multiple positions. And, you know, you and I have had extended conversations about where does she fit when you have so many um, talented individuals up top, you got, you got Sophia Smith, Morgan Weaver, Christine Sinclair and others. Um, it sounds to me like uh, Reen Wilkinson is going to do what she's done with, with some other players and find ways to, to move Janine around to, to get her into that lineup uh, without sacrificing uh, the potential uh, talent and skill and depth that they already have uh, at those up top positions. And by the way, for uh, for those who listened to our interview with Gavin uh, earlier today and who are thinking, boy, it would be nice to have uh, his uh, his Thorns counterpart, KK, uh, on the show. Um my, uh, you know, I can't promise anything concrete right now, but my my advice would be to stay tuned. Yes, stay tuned. We uh, we are working very hard behind the scenes to to have someone with the the personality and charisma of Karina LeBlanc. If she's listening, uh, this is just an open obvious plea right here. We'd we'd love to have you on, <laughs> Karina. Um, she she is a tremendous individual and and um has a very defined vision for what she wants to achieve with the thorns. So uh, we'd love to have her on, uh, but we will wrap it there. Uh, thank you, Chris, for uh, another fun week of, of discussion. And thanks again to Gavin Wilkinson for coming on and speaking with us at length uh, on a variety of topics uh, for Chris Reifer. I'm Ryan Clark. Thanks for joining us on soccer made in Portland and make sure to subscribe, leave a five-star review uh, retweet us, do whatever you need to do to, to get this pod out there and, and spread it to your friends. Thanks again.